All right. Well, when you look back on history, many historians would agree that Winston Churchill was one of the greatest leaders the world had ever seen. His leadership uh, of the United Kingdom, especially during his time as Prime Minister in World War II, is, is often highlighted as his most impactful uh, stage of life. Uh, the speeches he gave and the resolve that he showed, especially during some of the most critical moments and battles of the war, boosted the morale of the British people and the Allied forces. His commitment to freedom and democracy made him an iconic figure both in the UK and around the world. But his uh, military life, his life of service, his political life stretched long beyond just that time as prime minister. He spent decades in various roles within the British Empire and around the British Empire. Uh, but this morning isn't going to be about the blessings or curses of the empire or Churchill's service himself. But what I do want to highlight is one thing that uh, one of his biographers, Andrew Roberts, says about him. He says that Churchill took on the firm and irrevocable decision to dedicate his life to the defense of the British Empire against all its enemies at home and abroad. Time and again throughout his political career, he would put his allegiance to his, to his ideal of the empire before his own best interests. And I bring this up because uh, if people like Churchill and, and many other men and women through history could make such a passionate commitment to their countries, to the British Empire, with all its imperfections, how much more should we as Christians be committed to a vastly more gracious, more significant, and more eternal kingdom? I was challenged this week to consider the following question. What if it was said about you long after you were dead and gone that you took the firm and irrevocable decision to dedicate your life to the proclamation of the kingdom of God and its advancement against all its enemies at home and abroad? And that time and again you put your allegiance to God, his kingdom, and his will for your life above your own best interests? Now that's a big question, and a really good question, one that, that I'm still wrestling how to pin down and, and, and what that all might look like. But ultimately, the, the two things actually converge. Our best interests and God's kingdom actually work towards one single idea. See, your best interests, what's, what's best for you, and my best interests, what's ultimately best for me, are only found in one place, and that's the kingdom of God. Jesus taught uh, just a little bit later than the passage that we're camping on through the series in Matthew 6, 33. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God. Pursue the kingdom of God above all things and everything else will be taken care of, will be provided for you. So again, if Churchill and others could be so devoted to the British Empire, how much more can and, and should we commit our whole lives with sacrifice and passion to be devoted to God's kingdom? We are in week three of a series looking at the Lord's Prayer, or I suggested maybe we call it the model prayer. This is Jesus' answer when his disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And in the first week, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the address, kind of the opening line, where we pray, Our Father in heaven. And we reminded ourselves that, that being able to address God as our Father is something that's only possible because of Jesus' work on the cross. 
It's only because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and then invites us to follow him and and be transformed and, and be adopted into the family as sons and daughters of God that we can pray our Father. Then last week, we looked at the first of of six petitions or kind of prayer requests in the prayer. That one was, hallowed be your name. And we looked at this idea, the the doctrine of God's holiness and all that it entails. We said that God isn't just holy, but as the seraphim said in Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, that that, that they got it right when they said, no, no, it can't just be God is holy. It's God is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. We noted that as humans, we were made to worship and that functionally there's actually no such thing as atheism because we all elevate something into that primary, most important spot of God in our lives. And we need to frequently kind of take a a breath and, and sit down and take stock and see what it is that we are hallowing. What are we revering? What are we making most important in our life? What are we making holy? What are we worshiping? Because there's nothing that's created that can bear the weight of that spot in our lives. Only the creator can. This week, we're into the next petition of the prayer where we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And I want us to explore this line, this prayer request, if you will, by asking three questions. First, what do we mean by the kingdom? You say, your kingdom come, what what are we talking about? The second, what are we asking for when we ask God's kingdom to come? And then finally, how should we live our lives in light of this prayer? So that's where we'll go this morning. So first, what do we mean by God's kingdom? Now, In our New Testaments, uh, the word for kingdom is the word basilia, which sounds a lot like basilica. It's not a coincidence. Uh, And that word can be found 162 times in the New Testament. So clearly, kingdom is an important concept. And even though here in this verse it just says, uh, your kingdom come, it's it's obvious that it's referring to God's kingdom, right? We're praying to our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. So, if we want to correctly understand the discussion about kingdom throughout the New Testament, we need to emphasize that it is the kingdom of God that we're talking about. Now, Matthew will often call, kind of use interchangeably kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. That's just kind of his Jewishness writing to a Jewish audience coming out because they really wanted to make sure they didn't use the name of God too much. So uh, kingdom of God, kingdom in heaven are, are really interchangeable in the New Testament. Now, if you want a a bit of a simple definition of what the kingdom of God is, we could say that the kingdom of God is his rule and his reign. Or we could say that the kingdom of God is, is God's redemptive presence coming down from heaven to earth. Okay, so those are kind of two concepts we're going to try to pull together when we talk about the kingdom. It's God's rule and reign, or it's his redemptive presence coming down from heaven. It's the same kind of idea. Last week also we said that we can trace the idea of the holiness of God all the way through scripture, and this morning with the idea of kingdom, there's, there's no difference. We can do the same thing. See, right at the beginning, we find God's presence with Adam and Eve. His holiness and his covenant relationship is there right in the first pages of the Bible with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But because of their sin and rebellion, they were kicked out of the garden, which was the dwelling place of God's kingdom. 
A little bit later, God promised a holy land. And throughout Genesis, this, this promise keeps building and we see the people looking forward to this holy land. And a lot of the descriptions echo garden language. It's as though we're trying to get back to the garden, back to the presence of God. This was the promised land that God made for his people and, and where he would dwell with them and live among them, where the tabernacle would be built and where the temple would be built and the people would be gathered in God's presence. Eventually, again, because of sin and rebellion, God's people were kicked out of the promised land and exiled to Babylon, again being sent east of Eden. Over time, after the exile, they're allowed to return and build a new temple. And then when Jesus came, he announced that there would be another new temple, a new Israel. And he was telling the world that God's presence would no longer be situated in one place or one land or, or in one building, but it would be uh, ushered in around one person. So now, because of Jesus, the redemptive presence of God is found where? In the church. See, the church, like Eden and ancient Israel, is the place where God's laws are enacted, where his presence is known, where the heavenly realities of love and forgiveness and salvation are meant to be known as well. So it's here. Now, there is one really important distinction we do need to make when we're kind of talking about the kingdom and the church. Uh, they're not identical, but there's some overlap and they actually can't be separated. And so it's probably best to think of the church, global church, and then our church as well, as something like an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom. Let me uh, try to give you that picture a little bit more. If you travel pretty much anywhere in the world to any other country, you will almost always find a Canadian embassy. I looked it up on their website and I started to count how many there were and I lost count at the end of the bees kind of thing. So there, there are a lot around the world, in countries around the world. But think about what a, a, an embassy, a, a foreign nation's embassy is, or a Canadian embassy somewhere else is. It's, it's a Canadian office in a foreign land, right? And that outpost, that Canadian embassy, whether it's in Ecuador or Malawi or Peru or Portugal or Yemen, it exists to advance the interests of Canada, right? Likewise, the church, which has locations all over the world in all different nations and lands and situations and governments and religions and all the things, the church exists to advance the interests of another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus told us what this kingdom looks like. He repeatedly taught about the kingdom. Many of his parables start out with something like, the kingdom of God is like, and then he told the story that we can relate to. And more than that, his life modeled what the kingdom looks like and what kingdom life looks like. Some have called the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, which actually this prayer is found in the middle of in Matthew chapter 6, uh, called the Sermon on the Mount kind of Jesus' kingdom manifesto, if you will. And at the beginning of, of Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount, we find the Beatitudes, which uh, there's a similar set also in Luke chapter 6. Let me read those for us. These describe the kingdom of heaven, if you will. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, or, or happy or fulfilled, or those who have found meaning are those who 
are poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven. For that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what's so astounding about Jesus' kingdom is that the values and principles that he just described in this passage are pretty much the opposite of every other kingdom on the planet. Purity, humility, mercy, peacemakers. See, the church exists to model a heavenly reality on earth. It doesn't always get it right, doesn't always get it perfect, but we exist to model a heavenly reality on earth. It's not just some utopian scheme as though if we get everyone in line, there will be heaven on earth and earth will be heaven. But it's about bringing this, this kingly obedience or obedience to the king into our everyday lives. And we also look forward to an eternal life where God's redemptive process will be enjoyed to the fullest. And at that time, the king won't be something that's, that's breaking in here or there, but it will be our everyday reality. And so we can look forward to the words from Revelation 11, which you may have heard from Handel's Messiah. There, John writes, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So the kingdom of God is the heavenly world breaking into our earthly existence. Now, as you can probably already start to see, there's a bit of tension here, right? There's, there's some mystery. How does this work? What do, you, what do you mean it's here, but then you've got this text that says it's looking forward? See, in one sense, Jesus already is king. He's come. He lived his perfect life. He was obedient to the Father. He died on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected and went back to sit at the right hand of the throne, right? So he's already king. Yet, in another sense, he still needs to become king because as we look around, this is not heaven. And so we look forward to that second coming of Jesus. Now, theologians call this the, the already not yet of the kingdom of God, the already not yet kingdom of God. See, the kingdom can also refer to the age to come. In Matthew 25, Jesus says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left, and then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. See, that's, that's talking about something that's yet to come. That's the not yet part of the kingdom, right? It hasn't happened yet. Similarly, he teaches in Matthew 13 about the same kingdom that is to come. Uh, in John 18, 36, Jesus all, also teaches that his kingdom is not of this world, meaning he didn't come to rule an, an earthly kingdom. He didn't come to sit on an earthly throne. This kingdom has yet to be fully established. 
So it's still definitely coming. And yet, it is, in a sense, already here. And again, we, we can't make sense of the New Testament discussion of kingdom until we kind of wrap these things up in our heads a little bit, that the kingdom has come and is still coming. Jesus taught in Matthew 12, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, which he did, right? We read that he did that. Then the kingdom of God is upon you. It's here. Okay, but Jesus, then he just said that it's, it's coming. In Luke 17, he was talking with the Pharisees and he said, you guys are looking for the kingdom in the wrong ways. Jesus says, no one will say, see here or there, for you see the kingdom of God is it's in your midst. He's saying, the kingdom is here because I'm here. See, where the king is, the kingdom has come. Paul wrote later in Colossians chapter 1 that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. So the kingdom is already and not yet. It is both present and future. Another, another way to maybe help us wrap our minds around this, uh, think about the sun starting to come up in the morning or, or after a big storm, it just starts to break through the clouds. You may still have, in that storm, you may still have some snow falling or some rain falling, but the sun is there and you start to see the light. This morning when I was coming down, the, the sky starts to light up with pink, but there's still some dark shadows. It's not, it's not perfectly easy to see yet, right? The kingdom is coming, it's beginning, but it's not fully here yet. It's already and not yet. And that's also why Jesus told so many parables with the same basic point, that, that the kingdom may look small and unimpressive now, like the mustard seed, right? But at the end of the age, it will be unbelievably grand and glorious. Now, we spent quite a bit of time on this point because it's important we get this at least a little bit straight in our minds. Because lots of well-meaning Christians uh, don't get this straight. And, and this has been mixed up all the way back in church history, even right till right after the resurrection. Remember, or if you flip ahead in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, Jesus has has, has died, he's risen, he's with his disciples, and the disciples basically say, okay, Jesus, you've done this. We think we get it. When are you going to make Israel great again? Is, is this it? Is, is the throne coming back? Are we going to be the superpower again? They missed it. They were thinking politically and nationally, and Jesus corrects them in effect saying, no, 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 you're thinking way too small. For me to make an earthly kingdom great is way smaller than what I came to do. It, it's, it's, it's not, I don't want to say it's not worth my time, but it's not it. And he says to them, no, 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 you're going to be my witnesses, not just here, but in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the end of the earth. This is a universal kingdom. And it's a, a common misunderstanding that we often share with those disciples. They, they thought the kingdom was 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 smaller. They thought the kingdom was political and earthly, but it's actually spiritual and heavenly. See, the good news of the kingdom would not have been good news to people in Ephesus or Gentiles in Rome if it was just a new throne in Jerusalem, right? Kevin DeYoung has a great little book on the Lord's Prayer that has helped shape uh, some of the series quite a bit, and he puts, uh, puts it this way. He says, we cannot bring about the kingdom by elections or education or humanitarian good works or environmental stewardship or the cultivation of the arts. 
This is where we must not be confused. Yes, kingdom value should infiltrate our politics. Kingdom living should make a difference in our, communicate, our community. Excuse me. But let's not misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom does not advance when trees are planted, when unemployment is lowered, or when beautiful art is created, or when elections go one way or another. Those may all be important things, and they may reflect certain values of the kingdom, but the kingdom comes when and where the king is known. When Jesus is loved, and when he is worshipped, and when he is believed upon, there the kingdom of God is in your midst. I said we wanted to look at three questions when talking about the kingdom, and the first was, what do we mean by the kingdom? Hopefully we've gained a little bit of clarity on that. The, the, the mud and, and intertwined of, of already not that is, already not yet is there. But we've said that the kingdom is this already not yet inbreaking of the redemptive process of God in the world. The kingdom is his rule and his reign. Now the second question, which uh, for those of you who just looked at your watch, uh, is the answer is a little bit shorter than the first. But the second question was, so then what are we asking for when we ask for God's kingdom to come? See, the, the goal of this whole series was to help us grow in our prayer lives. We, we said in the first week, or I confessed and some of you agreed, that we know that prayer is something we should do. We know that it's important, but in a lot of ways and a lot of times we just feel inadequate in it. So I said, well, Jesus taught us how to pray. Let's see what this means. So the goal of the series was to help us grow. And if I look back at the things that I prayed for over the last week or so, and, and if you do the same, I bet there are a lot of good things that we prayed for. A lot of good things. A lot of helpful things. Even some selfless things. Yet often I wasn't really praying big, God-centered, kingdom-focused prayers. Now, to be crystal clear, there's nothing wrong with bringing even the smallest thing before the Lord. Struggling to focus? Yeah, sit down and pray. Can't find your keys? Sit down and pray. It's good. In a difficult relationship? Pray, right? All these things are good. Yet it's also important for us to recognize that it, it doesn't take the transformative, transformative work of the Spirit of God in our lives to want those things. Right? You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to want to be able to focus on your work or find your keys. You don't have to be a Christian to want to see sick people get better or to get a job or to get married or to have your life go well. But when we pray, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God for the inbreaking of the messianic age. We're asking for his commands to be obeyed promptly and gladly and sincerely. We're asking that, that Jesus would reign in human hearts. We're asking that the redemptive presence of God would be known here and now. We're, we're asking that the reign and rule of God would be experienced on earth. And we're asking for God's final victory to arrive sooner than we think. See, the Lord's prayer, this model prayer, is the cry of God's people saying, come Lord Jesus, quickly. 
Uh, to pray this, uh, as D.A. Carson writes, is to ask that God's saving royal rule be extended now as people bow in submission to him and already taste the eschatological, the, the end times blessing of salvation and to cry for the consummation of the kingdom. That's a big ask. That's a, that's a massive ask. And we may rightly pray about all sorts of good things, yet this ought to be the top of our list. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. We pray that the kingdom comes as Jesus taught us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our Father in heaven, may your kingdom come on earth. And all these things will be provided for you. The last question then is, okay, so we've talked about what the kingdom is. We've talked about what we're actually asking for when we pray kingdom come. How then should we live? Well, again, kind of helped by Kevin DeYoung, he says we should uh, sum it up kind of in three ways, which I think are really helpful. We should live obediently, outwardly, and expectantly. First, as we pray for God's kingdom to come, we want to live obediently. See, a real Christian prayer isn't about us trying to get God to do what we want, which, you know, sounds a little blunt, but I suspect, at least at times, we're all maybe a little guilty of that. God, I'm going this way. If you could just, like, bless this thing that I've decided to do without maybe asking you beforehand. Christian prayer isn't about us trying to get God to do what we want. It's actually quite the opposite. When we're praying this, we're actually asking that the world and everything in it and everyone in it would be conformed to God's will, which is to be as they were created to be in the first place. J.I. Packer uh, wrote this. He says, To pray, thy kingdom come, is both searching and demanding, for one must be ready to add and start with me. Make me your fully obedient subject. I like that. I really like that. It's uncomfortable, but I like that. See, it's one thing to kind of pray a, pray a you know, dare I say, non-committal, thy kingdom come, and then kind of get on before it gets too personal. But it's another for us as followers of Jesus to add, thy kingdom come and Lord start with me. Start with my family. Start with us. Start with our church. Show us where we're disobedient, where we're, where we're hindering the kingdom coming so that we can repent and come back and put us back on the right path. We want to live obediently. The second, we want to live outwardly. The first recorded words of Jesus in Mark's gospel, in, in Mark's biography, is really the, the single thematic message of his whole public ministry. Jesus steps up and says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That, that's the message. That's the kingdom coming. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus' mission was to come and to seek and save sinners. And his, his method was proclamation, was talking about it, was sharing about it, was, was telling people about the kingdom. And after Jesus had resurrected and then commissioned his disciples and commissioned the church to go, we, we read about how the church grew and the gospel spread in the book of Acts. So the, the whole book of Acts is about the, the birth and, and growth of the early church. 
And pretty much every time the word kingdom shows up in Acts, it's talking about either the advancing or proclaiming of the gospel. And the the book itself is bookended in chapter 1 and chapter 28, saying they are bearing witness to the kingdom. See, the, the spread of God's rule and reign, it doesn't come through armies or elections, but by the Spirit of God working in and through the people of God to tell others about the kingdom of God. That means also, as if that's not kind of rattling enough, there will be plenty of times when we are the answer to our own prayer. We may pray, God, let your kingdom come. And he may respond, I've got some appointments for you this week. So we want to be obedient. We want to live outwardly. And finally, we want to live expectantly. It's so, so reassuring that we don't pray as those who have no hope. See, our God is mighty to save. And he has lavished us with his grace through the work of his son and has welcomed us into his family. And it takes faith to pray. It it takes stepping out to to trust that I'm not just speaking to the wall or the ceiling, but I am actually speaking to a, a personal God who wants to know me and who wants to transform me and who wants to transform the world around me through me. But we trust in the Lord and his promises. See, for all, all, his, all his good and false, Churchill was absolutely right. Some kingdoms are worth living and dying for, at least one of them. So we pray that God's kingdom would come and we trust and believe that the God of the universe continues to invite people, everyone from everywhere, to come, repent and believe, and join his kingdom. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for uh, these words this morning. Thank you for how you taught us to pray. And I pray that uh, even in these moments we've just shared and as we uh, continue our service and head out into our weeks, that you would, you would help us grasp just a little more what it means when we ask that your kingdom would come. And maybe even even more than that, I pray that you would give us, uh, each one of us, a heart to pray earnestly and diligently that your kingdom would come. I I know that that every one of us has a million things going through our minds that we can be praying for. Good things, important things, things that are are not too small that we can't bring them to. You, you, You want to hear all those things. but I ask that you would help me and us rightly order our prayer requests. That we would continue to learn and grow in how we pray from this model prayer, that we start by remembering who you are, that you are our Father in heaven, the one who is holy, and then we ask that your kingdom would come. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir in our hearts that you would challenge us and convict us so that we would look like kingdom people. Thank you for the opportunity that we have, Jesus, that, that, that you started preaching, that we can repent and come to you. Thank you that there's, there's nothing that we have done is, that's, that's too far away for your forgiveness. Jesus, thank you that you love us so much, that you came to 
to walk this earth, to live as we live, to show us how to perfectly obey the Father, to perfectly uh, live out kingdom values. Thank you that you went to the cross for our sins, that you died the death that our sins deserve, and that you were raised again on the third day, conquering sin and death itself, and that you invite us to turn to you you invite us to join your kingdom and that your Holy Spirit transforms our hearts to be those who want to be part of your kingdom. We pray these things, Jesus, in your good name. Amen.